Welcome to the Wish Day Podcast. This is episode 15. Uh, in this episode, I have a good friend of mine. Uh, we've, been, we've known each other for about three years. Uh, we've worked together for three years in which we've done research. And I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah. Um, good morning. My name is Michael Parrish. Um, I'm from Kianta, Arizona. Um, my family's from Kianta, Arizona. I grew up in Southern California in San Bernardino for 20 years. And for the last 12 years, I've been on Navajo Nation. Um, I've worked here for about four years, and before that I was at ASU and then Dene College. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I'm, I'm, at a, I'm a policy analyst at the Policy Institute, and yeah, good morning. Yeah, so one of the things too that I wanted to talk about before this uh, season was over was um, the Navajo government. I mean, we've been talking about it, but specifically LGA, which is Local Governance Act, Title 26, for those who are um, unfamiliar with our government structure or the, um, the uh, shit, what's, what's it called? The, the letters? Ah, oh, I can't think LGA? of it. LGA? No, 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 like LGA, you know how like letters stand for something larger? I can't think of it right now. Euphemism? Acronym, yeah, I was thinking euphemism. <laughs> These acronyms, um, we have a lot of them. So uh, yeah, just give us a, a brief description or an, uh, an understanding of what Title 26 is. Okay, so before the Navajo Nation um, operated the chapter house governments um, for the last 50 years um, under the Navajo Nation. And it wasn't until 1998 that the council passed something called the Local Government Act, um, or LGA. So basically what it was was that it enabled chapters to control their procurement and expenditure process. It allowed them to form an alternative form of government. It also allowed them to um, issue home site and business site leasing, as well as taxing authority. The idea be t- behind the Local Government Act was to give local chapters and local communities an empowerment in order for the chapter government, in order to give them more of what the people want. An example would be the alternative form of government, also funded by local sales taxes, if that's the way they want to proceed with things. Um, in order to be LGA certified, you would need to do two things. You would need to have a five management um, system that is um, approved by the Resource and Development Committee, or RDC, or also um, have your land use management plan, community land use management plan, also certified by the RDC. Um, Once those two things are done, once they're approved by the RDC, then a chapter becomes certified, they get like a one-time check of $60,000, and then whichever way they want it to go is the way they go. Um, And that's pretty much how you get certified and the political and financial powers that a certified chapter has once they become LGA certified. And it's been about 20 years. Um, only about 50, about 50 chapters out of 110 are certified. So there's still a lengthy process, um, but I'll, get, I'll go more into that later. Yeah, it seems... So the LGA is just a form of decentralization, at least with political authority, correct? Correct. 
Um, so when we, we, we've been studying this for a while, almost three years, what, we'll start off with what are the issues that you see both in the certification, the process, but also the reality of an LGA chapter? What are things you've noticed that you could identify as issues? Well, some of the issues with certification is that um, as far as the five management plan system and then having your community land use plan certified, in order for a chapter to be empowered, I mean, I don't think it goes far enough. Uh, far enough. Um, I think you need to show more proof that a chapter is capable of what they can once they become certified. Um, and I think there needs to be more programs, more funding for a chapter to do that. I mean, you have a chapter of Rough Rock, you know, a few hundred people, and then you have a chapter in Shiprock who have like 8,000 people. Um, but even of 8,000 people, there are there are, I talked to the chapter coordinator there and there's like actually 12,000 people that actually claim Shiprock as their home chapter. And as far as the process to become certified, it's the same for Rough Rock as it is for Shiprock Chapter House. Now, if you look at the population, um, the process for it is, for the chapter, it's, 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 it's harder. It would be harder for a Shiprock chapter because they have more people, they have more funding, um, they need more resources. So once it becomes certified, I think the um, administrative service centers need to pay attention to specific chapters more than others to provide the proper support, which can be financial support, personnel support. Mm -hmm. Now, the ASC is... What's ASC mean? ASC is the administrative service centers. They are basically charged with helping the chapters become certified and also providing support in technical and financial means. Um, the ASC controls about seven chapters, eight chapters each, so there's about... Um, Oh, let's say there's about 15 man ASCs in the Navajo Nation. Um, and they're, yeah, like I said, they're tasked with making sure ch chapters are certified. So if, if certain chapters were assisted properly by the ASC, also, ASC is also part of a community development. Community development is also part of the central government. Now, ASC, under the community development, community development is a, is a department in which also assists chapter houses. Mm -hmm. So ASC is like the, the boots on the ground for the community development. Community development is also where chapters um, go when it comes to um, technical and administrative things with the central government. Mm -hmm. So that's for the process for becoming certified, and those are just some of the things that needs to be addressed. Um, clearly, there's a discrepancy between Rough Rock, the small chapters, and then the big chapters with Ship Rock. Um, so you know, like a good thing, a good thing they also like personnel would have would be grants writer, a lawyer for ordinances, or an accountant to provo to provide internal audits so that when they do get audited externally, then they'll pass their audits. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically just keeping the books in order, accountability, accountability. Um, the lawyer making helping the community draft up ordinances, local ordinances, whether it's trash, taxes, home site leases. You know that needs to be done legally um, because. A lot of ordinances, once they become certified, goes before the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice makes sure that these ordinances are legally abiding by law. Um, but in terms of crafting up their own ordinances, that is left up to the local level. But a lot of chapters um, don't really have the technical expertise to do something like mm -hmm. that. So, um, and then what was your second question? Uh, so, you went through a lot. I think we'll just slowly go through. <laughs> As you notice, we brought out the acronyms ASC, RDC, DOJ, <laughs> DOJ Mike, Mike's list of acronyms. Um, so, I think, I think you, you, you got, I think, most of it, which is the institutional issues. Right. And then, like, the, I don't want, like, the capacity building on the individual level, which is grant writing, the legality aspect, being able to have people who can assist them. 
which the ASC is, in my opinion, um, but also I think legally are like they're they're institutionally instructed to help chapter houses. What about the well? Let's let, we'll go back a little bit to the process of getting certified. What is the uh, bureaucracy behind that? Um, do you notice any issues within just a chapter house becoming certified that you would like to address? Um. Well, the bureaucracy of it is just basically lack of training, lack of personnel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I interviewed and surveyed a couple of chapters, some of them, so I'm going to use more acronyms. Um, <laughs> so in every chapter house, there's a, a coordinator, um, CSC, Community Service Coordinator. And then there's also the second staff, which is the AMS, which is also the Administrative um, Accounts Maintenance Specialist. Sorry. And then there's the PEP workers. PEP workers are basically part-time employment. Um, they're just short-term, six months at a time. So when I addressed these chapters night, when I approached them, a lot of, some chapters didn't have the coordinator, the CSC. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the chapter was actually ran by the AMS, the Administrative Service Accounts Maintenance Specialists. And then the PEP were basically the AMS. Um, some chapters I heard when I talked to um, community development, it's basically PEP workers. Oh, there wow. There is no AMS. There is no CSC. So there's no, like, uh, administrative personnel? There's no, yeah, there's no permanent staff or anything. Wow. So, um... Not to name names, but... I'm just kidding. No, um, <laughs> yeah, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. And so, you know, a lot of these chapters, they have a huge discrepancy when it comes to um, human, human capital, um, you know, resources, and it comes to people, expertise, and stuff like that. So... The bureaucratic process for that, you know, in terms of paperwork at the community development and, um, you know, going through the five management plan system and getting their community land use plan certified, you know, well, just as getting the community land use plan certified, they have something called a club committee, a community land use plan committee, mm-hmm. which is made up by community members. And even then there is, you know, um, internal disputes, there's... Um, there's a lot of issues when it comes to families with the grazing permits. Um, and even it's a challenge just giving, getting a community land use plan certified. Um, and then after that, once you do that, you have to go before the committee, which is, you know, members of council that um, look at the community land use plan and they give their opinions and comments and recommendations. Um, and that can be a process, too. Yeah. Um, and then once, and then the five management plan system, submitting documents, submitting the financial reports, um, you know, using the tribe software, which is from what, from what I talked to at the central government is troublesome, um, working with the tri- the financial software, <clears throat> you know, that's the process in itself. So, you know, basically lack of permanent staff, high turnover rate, mm-hmm. lack of personnel, the slow rate of which the community community development responds to the chapter houses. I mean, there's 110 chapters, and community development has, you know, a few dozen staff. Um, it, you know, staff, personnel doesn't really meet the amount of chapters that they need to assist, um, as well as the, the, the paperwork when it goes to central government. It's, it can be slow because it goes through so many departments. You know, I mentioned the community development, that's one. Um, also, Department of Justice, that's another one. Also, the council, that's one. And then there's... Uh, legal counsel for counsel, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the lawyers for the uh, nomination counsel. Um, so that's just the process. That's the red tape. Those are just so many bureaucratic layers that a chapter has to go through when, you know, there's a high turnover rate. And, you know, even if they have personnel, this, the chapter house government and its policies and procedures were created by the tribe 
but they also had to exist in a multi-layered you know they, they deal with BIA regulations in terms of the grazing permits with the grazing the tenure system that's a that's a BIA system oh shit and then they had to deal <laughs> with the um the bureaucratic system created by the tribe you know it's departments it's divisions it's department of justice and then it has to deal with um federal regulations you know federal regulations is not necessarily the same as BIA as you know if you develop any type of development in federal lands you know you have a lot more trouble to develop than to do with private property you know federal mm -hmm. lands you have to do environmental assessment historical assessment um you have to get right-of-ways um whereas in private land it's pretty much you know you can develop and that's that's how it is you know yeah. that's it so you know the chapter with two personnels and maybe part-time workers depending on this and then you know whatever they those part-time workers can also be like secretaries um staff administration um, duties or it can just be maintenance it can just be you know graders you know depending on what the community wants so you know the bureaucratic process with the tribe the regulations with the bia the regulations with the federal and as well as the lack of community support you know in some chapters you mm -hmm. know there's all there's all right now the chapter house wasn't created by Navajo Nation. It didn't, it didn't happen organically. It was given to us by a BIA official back in the <coughs> 1930s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've normalized it, internalized it um, um, among our community members. But it's not something that we created organically. It didn't yeah. come out on its own. So, But we did have, like, a very similar social structure, like, uh, read, I don't want to say regionalized, but it was localized. The right, right. Are, yeah. we, we did have a localized structure, but mm -hmm. nothing not, yeah. didn't come with the red tape <laughs> or the bureaucratic system or the internal regulations. Um, and so the people feel a disconnect between the chapter house and the people. Uh -huh. um, the chapter house provides direct services. So mm -hmm. I'm going to take an example I use a lot. You know, Kianta community, you know, like they provide, a chapter house provides scholarships, weatherizations, housing projects, um, you know, re renovations. And yeah. let's say you help 20 students with scholarships, 20 people with renovations, 60 people, you get a new home, you know. And if you were to execute this in one year, everyone would say that's a success. But 100 people out of a population of 5,000 people, um, people look at that chapter and they see it as kind of like a social service. Yeah. And rather it, than like a, a place of political empowerment, exactly, like no decision, decision making. making. Yeah. yeah, and so if you're going to only help 100 people out of 5,000 people, you're going to alienate 99% of the population. Mm -hmm. um, and so by that output, you know that that outlook by the people, then you're going to alienate them. Then that's why there's going to be a lack of participation, a lack of voting, um, and a lack of confidence in the local government. So that's why a lot of times the people don't necessarily support the government. Now, there are historical you know, socialization of the chapter house in which we mentioned, you know, historically, this is how we gathered and communicate with each other. The, the chapter house president wasn't immoral. I mean, <laughs> I, like, he wasn't, he, he wasn't a, a historical figure until, right. like, the 40s or 30s. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so you have some elders who respect the chapter house, and which was why you see a high turnover or high rate of participation among the elders because, you know, growing up, Back in the 1950s, 1960s, um, the chapter houses were more respected just because their parents, you know, when, when they were kids or when they were growing up, it was a new thing for them, you know, and then they taught their kids. And not only that, back in the 1960s, when the tribe also had a huge um, income from uranium mining, coal mining, gas extraction, oil extraction, 
the chapter houses will actually gain got a huge amount of um, revenue compared to the decades before, mm-hmm. which allowed the chapter houses to create programs um, to help the community out in more in more ways that um, which they ever could before. Yeah, it, it created like a I think Andrew would I think I don't know actually you know I'm not going to say it created like an apparatus that produced social services. Right. That, yeah. Right. Exactly. So you know, so our our grandparents saw that, and then our parents. You know, they experienced some of that, um, but mostly our grandparents, and which is why you see a lot of elders participating in the local government. But but then again, now you fast forward to 2000, um, the last census, 2010, about 60% of the Navajo Nation population was under the age of 28. Um, so you see a majority of the Navajo Nation population not really participating in the chapter house government, also with their perceptions of social services and, their, and the lack of the chapter's ability to even help half the population mm-hmm. of their respective communities then you see an alienation between the people in the chapter houses so so in terms of certification that's the type of challenges faces at the local level the social level the community level and then with the bureaucratic process that i mentioned with the paperwork yeah. also with the lack of personnel lack of human capital also the lack of red tape and a lack of understanding and also the layer multi-layers that the chapter has to face with federal bia and even tribal um, regulations and red tape those are the type of impairments that the chapter faces um today <laughs> <laughs> take a breath mike take a breath no i'm just kidding um but yeah, I think y- you went into what was eventually going to be my next question, which is what are the consequences? But let's let's roll back a little bit, Mike. Roll back. Um, what are so? This is something that you know we've we've discussed, which is when chapter houses become LGA certified. Right. Theoretically, they're supposed to gain powers, uh, but they don't. Can you speak to the issues that LGA faces? Um, even though they're supposedly supposed to be the certified political empowerment, you know, uh, localized government, but yet it doesn't seem to be the case. Can you talk about that? And then maybe from there go into um, uh, the, the you know, we'll start with that question, just because I kind of lost track of where that was going to go, but go okay. ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like once the chapter becomes um, certified, it is supposed to gain political authority over certain things. Um, one is taxation. There's a stipulation in Title 26 that says that the Navajo Nation Tax Commission will establish a policy for the chapter houses to adopt when it become when it comes to their taxing regulations. Once the tax uh, commission creates that policy for taxation, then it goes through its own internal process, like um, goes before the Department of Justice, and then it has to go before the Resource Development Committee. Then once the RDC approves that tax policy, then it is up to chapter if they want to adopt it. So in the ways they adopt it is they hold a referendum during the election season, then the community has to vote on that on that referendum um, if they want to adopt that tax ordinance. Um, that is a stipulation in Title 26. However, um, it's been 20 years, and the tax commission um, this year developed a policy on, or about a year ago developed a policy on tax taxation for the local um, chapter houses and this year the rdc finally approved a tax policy for the lga um the lga act Mm -hmm. local government act however in between 1998 and now i think about isn't it just one as far as I know, it's Tuba City, right? Are you right? Gonna, yeah, right, right. I saw a certified chapter. It's Tuba City. Yes. Who has the ability to tax? Yes, um, that is one certified chapter out of fifty, um, and then 
also post post LGA certification, um, business site leasing, only about maybe what five six has that authority. We can say Shanto, Tuba City. Um, if you're an LGA certified chapter who can do that, please email us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kidding. <laughs> but um, um, I mean, but the point being is that there's not a lot of people right. Who I have mean, that it's, it's probably like like half a dozen at best. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also another um, political power that well, another functional power that the chapter gains is also home site leasing, and no certified chapter has ever been granted the ability to issue its own home site leases. Mm-hmm. So, in theory, you know, it is the, the, the central government's responsibility to create this policy in a timely manner. Um, and then it's also the central government's responsibility to aid these chapters in the form of community development and, a, uh, and then the administrative service center. It is their responsibility to bring these chapters up to where they need to be in order for them to become certified. And the, the goal is to become certified because it's, it's, it's law. It, it's a law that the chapters have to reach. Now, there is no disputing whether they should be certified or not. There is no disputing whether they're ready or not. It is law. It's been done. The discussion now needs to be how are we, how should we move forward mm-hmm. with this? Um, and on many levels, the central government has failed the chapter houses. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because the, simp- the simple fact that these departments and divisions exist for the sole purpose of helping these chapters and only half of them are certified, and you created a policy 20 years ago, in which you probably should have created a year, you know, 19 years ago, shows by default that you failed the chapter houses. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the reality. And so with, with all these political authority, you cannot necessarily concretely say that LGA has failed for the simple fact that no chapter has ever gained all the political and functional authority of the Title 26. Mm-hmm. So no one chapter has attained all that. It's hard to grade somebody when they haven't given all their skill sets. Like, exactly, yeah. yeah. So so in that sense, you can't really say it's, say it's failed, but however you can... I think it's a bigger reflection of the overall system. I mean, I've named a lot of things at the chapter level, which they have challenges and barriers, and which in many ways the chapter houses have failed the community. But at the same time, it is not necessarily, it's a collective, it's a collective effort and it's a collective blame, you could say. You know, the central government, mm-hmm. um, like I said, failed these chapters and post-certification, you know, a lot of chapters in my interviews have said they see no difference between being certified or non-certified. Now, there are a few things that are different, like alternative form of government, the ability to change your policies when it comes to expending funds or like weatherization or renovation or um, electrical or water lines hookup. And also um, hiring, hiring um, staff and stuff at the local level. You know, those are some of the things that change. But also, but another negative, <clears throat> well, a negative when you become certified is you lose your benefits. Now, the tribe has something called HMA. And What's HMA mean? HMA is, well, um, I don't know. The, oh. <laughs> but, but HMA is basically the tribe's insurance. It ha- the tribe manages its own insurance. It has its own insurance company, like Blue Shield or something like that. Or, um, you know, uh, it has its own insurance. Mm-hmm. So the, when you become an employee of the tribe, <clears throat> you automatically are part of the insurance and the benefits, you know, stuff like that. And however, once a chapter becomes certified, then that chapter... And staff loses all those medical, dental, and vision benefits in the form of HMA. 
So when that happens, the, the, the chapter houses have to procure their own insurance for its staff and then their own insurance for the chapter house itself. You know, the chapter houses is supposed to be a place of community um, gatherings, right? But then also you also need to be insured, um, you know, for liabilities or something like that, um, like a dance or a chapter house meeting, someone slips and falls or something like that. So the chapter house has to pay for their own insurance for its buildings as well as its personnel. Um, so it loses that from the central government. So, you know, becoming certified, you become certified, okay, but then you don't gain 90% of, the, of its political authority. And you actually lose things. You actually lose things, yeah. So, so becoming certified is definitely a challenge in itself. You lose, in many ways, the support of the tribe, and without the political power uh, that the tribe's supposed to give you, then you're pretty much like <laughs> you're in limbo, right? You're, you're certified, but you don't have the powers to be cer- of a certified chapter. But then again, you don't have the support of the tribe because you are certified. You know, you, you're like in this gray zone until the, 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 the central government can empower you mm-hmm. on, a, on a more profound level. But also, this is all theoretical. This is assuming that once you are certified, things will happen the way you want to happen. Mm-hmm. And what is that? You know, how do you measure success? You, may, you know, like say Lee chapter, maybe they want to have more farming. So how do we know that certification isn't better for business development, but not for farming? Yeah. It seems like certification is more towards like business or like economic uh, development, more in the form of like business zoning rather than agricultural, even though it could possibly be used for that. Yeah. Right. It, it could. So it's, it's an attempt it's an attempt that hasn't even been fully executed for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, becoming certified, it's, it's, it's a problem too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, like, I th- one of the things that I wanted you to also, I mean, not wanted you, but I think it would be important is how do maybe L- chapter houses kind of bypass the limitations of their own uh, structural institutions I think that's a redundant, just their own limited institutions um, being like non-profits. Because you're not, I think you, over the summer, you've explained fully to me and the interns who worked here, shout out to the interns, um, about what chapter houses do and how they utilize uh, non-profits within their local government and what the uh, pros of it and what the cons are. I'm more of like cons because I just don't like non-profits, but go ahead. Okay, so, you know, a lot of chapter houses, they've actually, well, the chapter staff, they actually form nonprofits in their communities with the goal and the idea of um, augmenting the chapter houses, supplementing them when it comes to governance or expenditure of funds or even obtaining funds. Um, so several communities, they form a 501c, registered in Navajo Nation, and they are usually made up by like chapter presidents, chapter vice presidents, secretaries, or even a coordinator. And what they do is the idea behind nonprofit is basically when chapter houses apply for when chapter houses apply for grants, whether it's a state at the federal or even you know state or federal level, external grants. Um, they go before something called the 164 process. Now, the 164 process is basically um, a form where a lot of different departments in the central government has to sign off. So, like, 
let's say you get a grant from the state of New Mexico or Arizona or federal grant and, ha- and then you, you you say yeah you know you won this you know, won but you <laughs> you've been awarded this money <laughs> you know um then then you okay great and then you fill out a form called 164 process it goes, goes before department of justice community development it goes before the division director of natural resources and then depending on what type of grant whether it's for roads or um buildings you know it can go before you know you have to go before land department for right of way or if it was a building then depending on what type of building you know like nha or i mean you know it just it the list can go anywhere from six signatures to a dozen signatures to two dozen signatures um and then it's a process that can last anywhere from six months to about two years mm-hmm. um and then once all that is said and done then the chapter house can expend the funds uh, once they got approval through the 164 process. So a way to um, address that is chapter houses, like I said, um, usually made up by officials or staff, create a nonprofit, and the nonprofit applies for the grant. And then if the grant is awarded to nonprofit, then the nonprofit can go to Wells Fargo that night, <laughs> deposit the check, and expend the funds, and gives reports back to Not, the grantees. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, that is a way in which the chapter house has some control or influence in which the nonprofit operate because it's made up by chapter house officials and the chapter house officials know the intricacies and the problems and the plus and benefits of their own communities and through the chapter house government because they work there. They have that institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so this enables and empowers a nonprofit in order to work. Um, with the community and then it's also for the benefit of the community and stuff like that and so that is the pros of having a nonprofit made up of chapter house officials and members and working in conjunction and supplementing the chapter house administratively and financially yeah so that is a pro uh, pro but then the con is the political aspect. the political aspect um, <laughs> <laughs> also you know this idea came about was what is the mission, the purpose of a nonprofit? You know, I'm sure the officials, I mean, the officials, the staff, they have it. They know what they want to do with it and they know what it is. But at the same time, nonprofits are controlled internally. They have an internal board. Usually they usually have an internal board made up of different people. And those boards can at any time change policies and procedures and mission and the purpose. Now it's created by these key people in the chapter officials, but staff, there's also a high turnover rate. Uh, elected officials are elected every four years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then once they leave the chapter houses, there's no guarantee that these same people that work at the chapter house will stay at the nonprofit. Um, the nonprofit in name will still be alive and so will the government, but its intentions can change because you have a different type of people that can circulate in the new chapter house administration or even its staff. Also... With that being said, there is no guarantee that the people will stay with the nonprofit. Maybe the nonprofit institutionally will survive, but then will it become will it become something else? The issue is also will it diverge from its original intent? Yeah. Will it become more politically influ- influenceable to the community members or even other tribal entities because of its financial situation? This nonprofit can be successful in gaining grants or endowments or creating or you know um, donations or whatever, 
and then they can rival local governments politically simply because they have more um, money. more money, more capital, more assets, more support from the community. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at nonprofits, essentially they are more organic than they are with the chapter house. Maybe not historically, but they are made up by the people. They are created by Navajo people, and they can change and and manip- They can change and steer the direction of the nonprofit more more carefully, more with influence from the community members itself than the chapter house. Yeah. So what happens is you get like a split. Like, I'll just quickly sum this up: is chapter house creates a nonprofit to get revenue because one sixty four process is too long and arduous. So then it goes on, years go by, it gathers revenues in the form of grants, and then eventually new people transition in and out. Sometimes it may be the same people, but then the nonprofit has the ability to kind of diverge, or, and, and in its divergence, it can gain political power, or it already accumulates political um, influence, and it can, you know, you get like two, a two-government kind of thing, one providing financial and, uh, and uh, administrative support as well as social support, whereas a chapter house, which is supposed to be doing that, is just like, oh, give us some money. Um, right, it's stuck in the mud by yeah. the bureaucratic process, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think this is a good time to stop that part, you know. Um, it's a lot of information. Let's go personally, Mike. Um, you know, what's, a, what's, you know, just to transition, you know, you've been a researcher for a while, you know. What, what, what's your experience been coming back to the res? My, my experience coming back to the res... <laughs> Um, it's a multi-layered, uh, outlook on it. Um, socially, people are different. Um, the religion's different. Um, politically, you know, this is Arizona, borders the Navajo Nation, and, you know, it's a Republican state. Also, if Utah is a Republican state, um, New Mexico to the east is a Catholic state, generally and you know socially it's very conservative um you know in in the Navajo Nation yes okay like conservative traditionally or in Christian like in Christianity wise yes uh traditionally yes yeah um you have the Mormons to the north you know in my community (laughs) So yes, the north is where the Mormons are. Right. <laughs> I like how you're just like making this like a Game of Thrones kind of moment. <laughs> it is. It is. And, you know, to the east are the Catholics. You know, yeah. And, yeah it's very conservative. Um, yeah. I grew up in Rialto, California. I had a lot of teachers who were minorities. Principal were minorities. Uh-huh. Are the things that we discuss with racial issues. Um, you know, even sex sex education, the things we discussed there, like every year, you know, just stuff like that. Like I have a son in school, and you know, he like an example. I'll use sex ed as an example. Sex ed. You know, in some states they're not even required to have it. Some mm-hmm. states they are required, but even then, it's not like it's like not even once a year. It's not even required once a year. Yeah, it's bare know? minimum. Yeah. Um, when I had growing up is we had it every single year and mm-hmm. we talked about anything and everything and we set aside maybe like two days out of the whole year and we talked about whatever the whatever the, the issues may be. And that's not something my son has. Um, also the type of teacher the, the type of things that we discuss in the classrooms. Um, you know, in the conservative 
view, you know, nor in traditional conservative view, and I'm talking about like um, like an American conservative view. Mm-hmm. There's also an emphasis on conformity, um, the, you know, the, the melting pot, you know, like conform to American values, American idealism, um, and also, you know, our grandparents knew this more better than any of us, you know, with boarding school, military mm-hmm. style drills, and to listen to the teacher, not speak their own language. And it has a resonance, you know, it echoes to the modern day era. Um, we don't have the things that we had experienced from our grandparents, but we see it. We see the, the repercussions, you know, mm-hmm. conformity with a lack of expressions, a lack of ideas that is allowed in a public school settings, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I, I work at a college, um, indigenous college, and I you know a fellow my colleagues, you know, he, he made an observation and, you know, he went to a, a university outside the um, Navajo Nation. And he said, you know, there's a lot more protesters. There's a lot more advocacy. There's a lot more, you know, pushback from students because of their ideas, because mm-hmm. of their, their um, edu- you know, based off their education, they have these ideas and, you know, what society defines as right or wrong. And, you know, the next generations want to have a, a voice and a, an opinion on how we define these new ideas, mm-hmm. you know. And that's something that's definitely lacking in the Navajo Nation when it comes to the youth, when it comes to a lot of things. Yeah. And I think it has I think it has a lot to do with mm-hmm. conservatism influenced by the American idea, you know, patriotism mm-hmm. or the American values. Not only that, our historical trauma from you know boarding school error mm-hmm. in which the parents pass along the idea of conformity to their own kids or grandkids yeah. and so i think that's one of the biggest observations i've made in the navajo nation would you consider that like because you've met you in, in our discussions a lot you mentioned like social barriers is that what is the uh relations of your idea of social barriers to you know what you've experienced in the reservation so you know when i say social barriers i mean like um you know, like there's a referendum, like a resolution by chapter houses, uh, you know, or the economic development committee has to come to a consensus. Or when Russell Begay pr- pr- um, proposed economic zones, he wanted to create a, a committee to decide where these economic zones mm-hmm. are. So basically, and it seems like there's always a need for consultation with the community members. However, there these committee members shouldn't be gatekeepers. They shouldn't be people who decide long-term development, long-term decisions, long-term, because, you know, a lot of these community members, they're not necessarily expertise in any particular field. They're not technocrats. Mm-hmm. They're not bureaucrats. They don't have an overall understanding of the, what the big picture is. Social barriers, you know, these are made up by people who have personal beliefs, personal expectations. We're a multinational, multicultural society who are heavily influenced on by non-Navajo. We are aggressively influenced by non-Navajo interests, non-Navajo mm-hmm. cultures, and it's not something that we've, we've, you know, it's not something that we've embraced. It's not something that we sought. It's something that has been forced upon us, and I think that is what is affecting our ability to steer Navajo Nation in the way Navajo Nation wants to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these people, you know, we have interracial marriages, we have interracial relationships, but there's a difference between that and being Navajo, and also then, then there's this difference between being Navajo and that, and then also being influenced by outside American interests mm-hmm. in the forms of, you know, quote-unquote education, yeah. or quote-unquote the benefit of Navajo, you know, 
when you get money from the Americans, there's strings attached to it. When you get education from the Americans, those are strings attached to it. And we don't see the results that we want to see. We see the results the Americans want to see. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a big you know, barrier and challenge to our own internal society And when it comes to deciding for ourselves what we want to do for our future. Yeah. And when, in terms of social barriers, when you... How how have you experienced it? You know, if if you want, if you feel like speaking on to a, a certain um, experience, because I, I think, in my opinion, and this just based on what you said, how I would define it would be uh, ways of excluding certain members of the population, um, and like as a way of I don't know yet dominating, but like just controlling at the moment with like maybe language being one of the things. Uh, you know, I can't understand it. I can understand it. I just can't really speak it. But due to that live due to that issue is that that could be a possible social barrier not just for me, but for maybe individuals um on the other side who only speak Navajo. And and it's I think there's like a large issue right now that's being discussed. Um and and this goes both in like the social life but also even the political. Like if we talk about chapter houses where a lot of the times it might actually be conducted in Navajo. In some cases, it's conducted in English. I think most cases it's conducted in English. Um, but that would be interesting to do. Like, what are what what is the language that is most that is utilized when in, in these political settings? And I think I would say maybe it might lean just a little bit towards Navajo, just a little bit. Um, what what experiences would you note um, since um, you've been back? You know, like. You know, I, I use um, social barriers in decision-making or economic development. So uh-huh. this sense, I will say, like, in my personal experience, you know, when it comes to political figures, community leaders, nonprofits, social settings, um, things that are, you know, like we influence each other. You're right. It's also mostly the majority of time it's in Navajo mm-hmm. without little regard to the youth or people who don't speak Navajo because yeah. the majority of Navajos, majority of young Navajos don't speak Navajo. And there's a, an acknowledgement, but there's also kind of blame on the youth for not speaking Navajo. Yeah. But you know, the youth cannot help not speaking Navajo any more than the elders can't help it for going to boarding school. If you're going to blame me for not speaking Navajo, then I'm going to blame you for you going to boarding school. <laughs> you know. The thing, though, is that some of them are like, yeah, go ahead, blame me. Um, but, but, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and, and and so in both situations, none of us had a chance, you know, a mm-hmm. say or how that happened. Um, but there are repercussions. You know, mm-hmm. there are the, there's a repercussion for the youth not speaking Navajo, and there are repercussions for the elders going to boarding school. Mm-hmm. You know, loss of the nuclear family, a huge up, uptick in um, social... social um, Ills. Ills, social yeah. breakdowns, alcoholism, abuse, mm-hmm. neglect. But also, you know, those are the social responses from boarding school. But, mm-hmm. but also the responses from a lack of not knowing your language. There's a discord between the youth and the older people, mm-hmm. the elders or even like middle age, you know, generation X or Y or something mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, and also, you know, um, but then again, if you look at the technical aspect, when there are reports, they're in English. When there are oral reports, they're in English. When Navajos talk among each other about important issues that came about there in Navajo. So the communication between 
um, older Navajos and elders. It's all strictly, you know, Navajo language. But then the communication between the youth among each other and even technical aspects of um, the tribe, its operations, its money, it's all in English. Yeah. So, you know, you'll have, you have a split because different issues but important issues are both done in Navajo and English and politically, socially, and I think, you know, that is just... That is not necessarily a cause, but as the effect of, you know, that discord, that split between mm-hmm. speakers and non-speakers. Yeah. Um, but, I, I always take it as a way to, rather than focusing on who does and doesn't speak English, or Navajo, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I almost choked, uh, but focus on rather the structures at play, you know, because I, I feel like a lot of blaming goes around, and it's not really conducive to anything uh, progressive. It's just people, I don't actually, it's, I'd say in general, it's just like, it creates a binary between the youth and the, the elder. Right. Um, and that, and that seems to be just something that we, we've got to work on and, and focus not on blaming each other, but rather figuring out how we can accomplish it together. Um, so in the next question is like, what, what do you envision for the Navajo Nation? Well, what, we, we have this question and this is, I've, I've mentioned this throughout this podcast, which is. Um, where do you see the Navajo Nation in 100 years? And that question is actually came from a discussion. It's always been discussions between Mike and I of, well, where do you see it? You know, and then I, I've just used that question throughout my life since then. Where do you see the Navajo, or where would you like to see the Navajo Nation in 100 years? Well, first step to that would be controlling our land. Basically, fuck yeah. <laughs> Say it, Mike. Say it one more. Say it for the people in the back. Controlling our land <laughs> from the Americans, basically. Um, eliminating the current tenure system, creating our own national land use plan, and then giving ourselves the ability to the right to regulate land on our terms, whether it's home site, business site, mineral, mineral extraction, or even right of ways. That would be the first step. Mm-hmm. Then after that, I think um, I think a lot of basically soul, soul um, searching from the tribe has to be done. What do we want to be? You know, like, do we want to be financially independent, politically independent, physically independent? You know, like, what is it we want? You know, like, um, my envisionment, you know, would be for the total and the complete independence of Navajo from the Americans. Fuck yeah, Mike. <laughs> uh, I mean... <laughs> If you look at the Kurd, Kurdistan in Iraq, um, I think it was a year ago they had a referendum and they voted, like, I think it was 80, upper 80s to 90% um, to break away from Iraq, mm-hmm. you know, and form its own country. And, you know, and that's, they, they should. That's the self-determination. Um, so I think something along those lines. Does the majority of the nation want to break away from the Americans? Um, but then again, I think before we even get to that level... You know, I think um, I met this, we had a student, you know, that worked um, for us. It was an intern student. And she grew, she was a stateless person, meaning that she didn't have a country that she was a citizen of. Mm-hmm. Um, she was Tibetan. She, her government was in exile. Her people were in exile. But her exile government made sure that she grew up knowing certain distinctions between mm-hmm. occupation, liberation, um, imperialism, colonization and indigenous right to self-determination she recognized these distinctions and because of that 
you know, she knew where she wanted to go. She knew where her people wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that a lot of her fellows, you know, fellow, um, I, you know, national, you know, this, her fellow people that were part of the same country were divided among them, the world and the countries. They've created organizations, um, conventions, uh, meetings, councils that include, you know, it, it, they form coalitions. They form these groups to advocate for the liberation of their country. They form all these externally entities in which they can, you know, liberate their own nation. Um, and they, in, you know, they all have different degrees, different ideas in life, where they want to go. But in the end, their main goal was the liberation of their country. Mm -hmm. Their main goal was to empower their own people. Um, and I think that comes from the exile government, making sure that they grew up with an education, their education, their political, their historical and their cultural education. And I think that's carried them in life to the betterment of the nation state of where they come yeah. from. Even though they may not even have access to that. Right, right. You know, it, it's the I. It's the the goal, which is like yo, and this goes back to what you're talking about with education: is that the Navajo Nation doesn't have control over much of its education. Right. Yeah. You know, we. It, I don't. I would argue that ninety to like eighty percent, or a majority of Navajo students who graduate from high school don't know how their government operates, doesn't know how local government works, doesn't know the history. Um, it, might, it, it might diminish as they go to, you know, college, but that's, and that college being Diné College or, or even NTU. Uh, and, and I think that's a really good point is that these, these what you, the, the example you brought up, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and so, right, um, because now nation doesn't control its education, mm-hmm. but the exile government where the student came from did control their education. They had to go to a different country <laughs> And mm-hmm. live in exile, but they still, you know, instill this type of specific education because that's where they're from. That's where they belong. That's who they are as a people. That's the education that was controlled by the exile mm-hmm. government. And that's how these people were able to move forward with what they wanted to do politically and historically. I think Navajo Nation needs to do that type of education first. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have a nation. We have land base. We have... A culture we have a language but we don't have control of over our own education mm-hmm. that's one of the things that needs to happen now i mean if we do it now then maybe in 20 years we'll see something like what we really want to do it wouldn't be a fair or even an accurate assessment if we were to vote or survey where we want to be in 100 years because the majority of the people were educated by a foreign nation they were educated by a foreign power you know, and so how do you expect your kids to know what they want when they grow up when someone else has taught them? You know, like, I have a, a point, but what about us, Mike? We were educated by a foreign power, <laughs> yet, you know, we have a clear understanding. Right. I mean, to me, it sounds like we need a certain type of education that really emphasizes, like, liberation, right. like, revolutionary, like, thought. Um and 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 that could just mean that that could and that doesn't have to be necessarily like we start reading Black Panther pamphlets or you know Mao Zedong like we could start just by educating like the people about who we are, um, fostering an identity that um, promotes its own liberation as well as eventually in my in my opinion going beyond that and in, like an in international liberation. Yeah, I mean, well, it it can even start just. Before all that, it can even just start by making distinctions. 
Yeah. What are we as an Apple nation? We're a semi-autonomous nation. What does that mean? You know, and then other nations around the world, we have that. Okay, and then we're separate from the Americans. Why? You know? Yeah. Just looking, yeah. So yeah. Like just yeah. And basic then, questions of Yeah, like, basic. What? Yeah, yeah. And then pointing out stats. You know, we got the worst, um, you know, we're, we're the least educated. We have the worst health care. You know, all these distinctions from us, from the Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, what is our pay? Our pay is, in, um, we have low pay compared to the Americans mm-hmm. in every group, in every, you know, so healthcare, education, pay. Yeah. You know, we make these distinctions that, yeah, we are Americans by op- occupations, but we don't really live like this. Say that again, Mike. What are we? We are Americans by <laughs> occupation. <laughs> Mike's got some bars today. But, uh, <laughs> but we don't live like them. Yeah. Like, I don't have private property. I don't have a good healthcare. I don't have a good education for my family or anything like that. Yeah. You know, but I'm educated. I went to their universities. Yeah. I went to, I, I learned English as my primary language, mm-hmm. right? You and I both are part of the melting pot. We got, we were educated in their universities. We're the, we're the Navajo Spice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, we've done everything like society, quote unquote, says, but mm-hmm. yet do we have the same out, the same, um, you know, do we have the same results? Uh-huh. It's like, no, we don't, right? Yeah. Even, um, where you know we 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 vote, limiting in state elections, uh-huh. um, but 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 those are state those are state um, entities you yeah. know and but yeah we which, have which are actually our biggest enemies besides like state governments are the, the they're the worst enemies yeah. they're always trying to I- I- impose Limit, on our yeah. sovereignty you know like with the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act with the Winters Doctrine, um, with the in, recently with the Indian Child Welfare mm-hmm. Act, you know that has been. So it was in, in Texas, right? Right, no, it was yeah. in Texas. Yeah, and it's a state entity. Yeah, you know, and Winters Doctrines, we had to settle water disputes in the state courts with the Gaming Regulatory Act. We had to, we had to have a compact with the state. You know, before that, we didn't have to. So, at the you know taxation, gaming, children, um, water rights. The state is always trying to encroach upon tribal sovereignty, you know, and yet, and, and, you know, and these state entities are the elections that we have with the state, you know, it, we're not really involved politically. Like we, yeah, we vote, but it doesn't represent Navajo Nation. Yeah. If we were truly integrated in the quote unquote Americans and we were not occupied, then we would have representatives in the state and the House of Representatives in Congress. Yeah. But we're not. And, but yet we're subject to taxation just mm-hmm. like everyone else. We do, we, we, you know, contrary to popular belief, we do pay personal income tax just like everybody else. We don't get free ed- education. We don't get free education. The tribes that do get free education is because... Or I should say free college education. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, but, but according to the Arizona Constitution, every child is entitled to free education. Yeah. But, you know, we don't get free education. The tribes that do have free education is because they had to create, you know, um, mineral extraction or casinos mm-hmm. at the expense of their own people with, and you know, land. gambling issues, yeah. with land. You know, like in Yavapai and um, Prescott, the, the kids get, the native kids get to go to that Yavapai Community College for free because that college was built on Yavapai land. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a give and take. You know, it's like we, you know, we basically paid for our land in blood, and then also our political and our, you know, IHS or education. We paid for it with our land. Yeah. You know, so what little land land we have is being paid for our blood, by our blood, and then the political and the also the, the the not benefits, but the things that we traded for our treaties were paid for by our land. Mm-hmm. You know, in the struggle too. In the struggle yeah. too. So, those are things that we already paid for. Yeah. And um, in terms of the state, you know, they're always, 
Like, you know, their encroachment and everything. Yeah. So, so I, we're coming up to the 55th minute. Um, you know, what are your final thoughts, comments? You got anything? You want the, the, the Wish Day Nation? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Wish Day audience members to listen. Or, like, you know, what, what's something you'd like them to take away? Or final thoughts, comments? Um, what I like, the biggest thing I like to take, like, what I tell a lot of people is that, you know, in terms of education, there are a lot of types of education but it's up to you to take it f- forward. You know, like you could have a crappy teacher, crappy department, a crappy division, but it's up to you to, to bridge those gaps. You know, it's your life. It's your, it's your um, goals, uh-huh. you know, just because someone else falls short, whether it's your parents, your family, your teachers, it's up to you to go beyond that and to, you know, go above and beyond. Also in your education, it is important to make these distinctions you know whether you're indigenous or minority or whatever make these distinctions you know and recognize the situations um political situations you know there's been you know ferguson the shootings um, even the recent thing with the borders at tijuana right right with the borders or you know the immigrants look at their situation look at the people that talk about them the people that shoot at them you know our own minorities in our community in our in our nation and then with the Americans and their nation and with the Mexicans, look at these things and recognize these distinctions. Mm-hmm. Distinctions that, you know, we are not all treated the same. You know, they speak about equality, but that is the last thing that we experience <laughs> yeah. in everyday life, you know. But that's the reality, you know. Like, we, we strive towards equality. We strive towards justice. But don't let that blind you to what you see every day, you know. Don't let that blind you. Like, don't let you, let that make you complacent. You yeah. know, we have goals to be a certain way, but that doesn't mean we should ignore what's happening in front of us, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, so I think a lot of it be it starts with education, and then you go forward, you push yourself, and then make these distinctions. And then after you make these distinctions and you're aware of what's going on, then I think it's up to you of what kind of person you are. Yeah. Are you a complacent person? Are you, you know... Yeah, it's like that Wu-Tang lyric, stay awake to the ways of the world. Sorry. No. Yeah. Um, that sort of reminded me. But thank you. I appreciate it um, for you coming on. It was a good talk. And I know half of this conversation was dedicated to the Local Government Act, local government, and other half was to, you know, how you feel. How, how you feel, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Um, but thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, to everybody that's listened, thank you. Appreciate it.